It is March 24th, 1949. We are at the Academy Theater in Hollywood, California. We've been enjoying the hosting of Mr. Robert Montgomery this evening, and it is time for the big award of the night, the envelope, please. And the winner is... The winner is Hamlet. My goodness, is it 1561? Like, why? <laughs> <laughs> Was that the year Hamlet came out? Do you know the exact I have, year? I have no idea. I'm <laughs> <so happy. laughs> what if I what if I got it exactly right? I I I would be very impressed. It I'm was not going between to lie. 1599 and 1601. Wow. So I have 30 so you, years. But I mean, when you're going back, what, like five, six hundred years? I feel like you're allowed to be off a couple of years. So yeah, one day people yeah. will lump in. Uh, you know, guess who's coming to dinner with uh, the shape of water? And they'll say like, yeah, they're around the. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> you know, one or the other. Yeah, the same. Okay, so what a year we have here, 1948. How how have you been, Sam? The the viewers or listeners, I should say, don't know this, but but we actually haven't recorded in in four months. It's been a while. Well, the quarantine yeah. really got us. It really we, halted things. We were so far ahead of what <laughs> was. Um, so if you listen to Gentleman's Agreement last week, just know that uh, uh, that was way before quarantine. <laughs> yeah, that was recorded in like February, early February, wasn't it? I know. Um, and I was. I would listen to the episode, and I I thought it was so interesting that we uh, that 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 movie in that year ended up being so pertinent in in certain ways because uh, we we spent most of the episode talking about uh, discrimination, which is a uh, obviously a topic uh, of conversation right now. And also 1947 ended up being the year that uh, Hollywood, the Ryan Murphy show rewrote um, on their series. So it takes place in out. 1947. It takes place in 1947, and they a show the 1947 Oscars. Oh wow! And, yeah, and they change who all the winners are uh, <laughs> to benefit the movie within the movie that they make. But um, ah yes, uh, it's just it's just I, I I whether or not people listen to Gentleman's Agreement. I know it's not a big name movie. Uh, it, it did end up. Being an episode that had some uh, relevance to what was going on, or what very is very relevant. Behind. No, yeah. I I feel like it was incredibly relevant to today. And also, when I was listening to it as well, listening to it back as I was getting it ready, I was also incredibly saddened just to realize how little strides we have made in terms of uh. discrimination between any kind of you know minority or religious background, whatever you have, ethnicity doesn't doesn't really matter there's still discrimination on all fronts we we have we we still have to get through driving miss daisy and green book i mean like and green book literally was only a couple of years ago you know what i mean so it's like it's just really hard to believe that it is and it's also kind of a common theme that we have been talking about with hollywood and the best picture movie for sure where sometimes it seems like when a movie wins, it feels like we take five steps forward in the industry, and then the very next year, a different movie will win, and it seems like we take 12 steps back. Yeah. You know, there's always kind of a, uh, I don't know, some kind of there's tension there. Pull. Yeah, there's this tension. Uh-huh. Well, you know, that's uh, when we talked about um, when we talked about Gone with the Wind, um, another hot topic conversation recently. Definitely. Uh, a few, you know, many episodes ago now. Uh, whenever we talked about that, I don't remember if I said this, but I, I, I've always thought of that movie. It's interesting because it, it feels like America in a nutshell because it's it has this progressive win for an Academy Award uh, actress and Hattie McDaniel taking home the supporting actress award and having a character that's a little bit more fleshed out, but it still presents this inaccurate um rose-colored glasses version of what slavery was um so it's like you have here we're going to push you a little bit forward but we're going to push you back at the same time and that just kind of feels like that just kind of feels like the american story 
Um, and the Academy, unfortunately, often very much highlights that. Definitely. And I think I was actually um, curious to talk to you about this because I know how much you do love Gone with the Wind and with it being kind of a hot topic right now. I feel like that really does demonstrate and kind of shows people what Hollywood is comfortable Mm-hmm. rewarding people uh, based on their performance, you know? Like, they're comfortable giving Hattie McDaniel an Oscar as long as it's portraying a slave in this, as you mentioned, you know, rose-colored lights, you know? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like she enjoys being a slave. She's happy to do it, you know? That's the way it comes across, you know? Yeah, Gone with the Wind is such a complicated... Excuse me, just a complicated movie to talk about in general because it... um. It, it, you can't deny that it doesn't sweep you up and envelop you as a story. Like it mm-hmm. is, it's an extremely well-made movie. But the thing is, like all pieces of art, it comes from a perspective, and oftentimes perspectives are flawed Definitely. or wrong. And um, it is a movie that is based on a novel that was written by somebody who was a daughter of the confederacy basically and the viewpoint that the movie has um while not i mean like it's it's also complicated because the story it's passive in the way that it depicts slavery in the way even honestly in the way that it depicts the confederacy because it's it's so much about scarlet and her journey that the Confederacy is a backdrop, slavery is a backdrop, but that's also kind of part of the issue that people have and the the issue with um, not just that story, but oftentimes the way that we talk about that period and the movies that kind of romanticize it, you know, yes. um, it's that it, it's just there and it's, it's just part of the set dressing, you know? Right. And... Absolutely. Yeah, and 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 I um, it, it, like from an artistic level, it's it is a it's a extremely well made. Uh, it, it's on every technical level and every way that the story is structured, it is a near perfect film. But from its perspective, it is uh, something that needs extremely heavy context. And you have to watch it knowing that it is not only of its time, but farther back than its time in a lot of ways. Um, and I think contextualization, I, I don't think I don't think anything should be necessarily removed from the zeitgeist. I think that that it's art. And so film should be available in some form in some way. I I think the brouhaha excuse me, over HBO Max taking it off of their service was a little, was extremely overblown um, mm-hmm. because it, first of all, it didn't go away. It was still available. <laughs> yeah, it felt incredibly like reactionary, like, oh, we need to do something to show how much we care too. You well, know, and it was like freaked, people freaked out. It went to number one on Amazon and iTunes and I mean, like, clearly it's not gone. It's still available on those platforms. And yeah. um, and all the physical copies sold out on Amazon. I mean, like, it's like people thought we were going to remove this from circulation. But what HBO Max is doing, and they're using Jacqueline Stewart, who is um, uh, this amazing host on Turner Classic Movies that does typically silent Sunday nights. And she is um, a black film professor believe at the University of Chicago and she does a great job of putting context into films oftentimes dealing because she does the silence on TCM so she's oftentimes dealing with uh, very backwards perspectives um, and she uh, she spoke at a panel about Gone with the Wind at the 2019 TCM Film Festival along with some other black film historians and um, just having heard her talk about it uh, before um I know that with her introduction on HBO Max along with the movie, it'll be a way to watch that film that I hope we can we can do with other movies. I hope that because ultimately, like part of the joy of becoming a film fan is discovering history and seeing 
how far we have come, how far we haven't come. And um, I think I think the opportunity here and the conversation we should be having is how can we recontextualize our past so that we can learn from it, appreciate what good is there, and uh, move forward. Um, because ultimately, those who can't learn from their past will repeat it. And so this is, this is, and and that's kind of what I think is great about what we're doing because, you know, we, we often are really jokey on this podcast, but ultimately, you know, when we talk about something like Cimarron, which has lots of problems, Mm -hmm. when we talk about movies that deal with anti-Semitism, like Life of Emile Zola and Gentleman's Agreement, we're, we're showing the slow and subtle progress and regression of our country. I, I think that's the amazing thing about looking back at the movie that Hollywood chooses to represent that year is we learn something about America in that year. Absolutely. So we have, this is a history project in a lot of ways. And You know, here's a question for you. Could mm-hmm. a film like Gone with the Wind be made today? A very, you know, um, whitewashed version of the Civil War told from the perspective of a Confederate girl, you know, could could Hollywood get away with making a movie in that light from that perspective today? Well, you know, I I don't think that we're at a point right now where we can even broach showing a Confederate perspective in a film or television show because mm-hmm. I don't think we're far enough removed from those attitudes now. To, to do it in a way that wouldn't be irresponsible. Right. Because, I, I mean, I, I, in a lot of ways, I think we thought we were, we were past that and that we could show it and have, um, and have that balance. But I, I think that, I think there may come a day where we could take a story that comes from the perspective of somebody who's in the South during the Civil War um, and both shows the atrocities of the Confederacy of slavery and um, shows whatever the main character is going through. Um, but right now it would it would be doing anything that makes that perspective remotely sympathetic right now mm-hmm. is is wrong. Somebody will take it up and say like, look, uh, lost cause mentality oh sure you know it'll be taken as a battle flag for somebody so we um gone with the wind can't be it can never be made again the way it was made um and that isn't i mean like that it also that's the thing it's just such a complex movie because it also represents the studio system at its zenith and right um and it's like uh, a movie that's also an allegory for the Great Depression. And it's like, it has all of this other stuff going on. It just, unfortunately, has these other issues that you have to set aside in order to enjoy. And right now, it's just um, a precarious thing to talk about because uh, so many people in our nation are still racist. And we don't yet have any kind of distance from racism to where we can be remotely thinking about entertainment that uh, that shows the shows anyone from the Confederacy in any type of um, favorable light. It would be it would be wrong. To Definitely, do that. and I think it shows it it can teach people too that like slavery was okay. You know, when they watch this yeah. movie and they see the relationship between Scarlet, Rhett, and Mammy, they think that this is a healthy relationship. You know, the, almost as though, like, Mammy wants to be mm-hmm. a slave, which, which I think it can be very dangerous for young people to watch. You know, we watch Gone with the Wind in school. You know, we watch it as part of, like, the Civil War history lesson, what have you, you know? And I remember thinking then, too, just kind of thinking... This could give people, especially kids, young minds, kind of a wrong impression. The problem is 
when we watched it in school, we didn't have that conversation. There needs to be a follow-up after you finish it and saying, now let's break this down yeah. in terms of Gone with the Wind in the time that it was not only made, but the time that it was written, who wrote it, what were the circumstances. Those are the conversations that need to be had mm-hmm. you know, once someone is exposed to this movie or any movie that kind of whitewashes slavery in that way. We'll get to Green Book one day and the problems with white savior films. I mean, like I have had so many friends of mine who have been posting about don't watch The Help to oh, <laughs> yeah. self about racism. Um, you know, the fact is we have a lot in our cinematic history that unfortunately very much showcases um the white savior uh white perspective um and us uh you and me as two white guys um you know we have to uh we have to be aware of that and cognizant of that when we're watching things and i think that our job as film fans um and the job of any type of service that's going to curate uh, these movies, which is so, so many movies beyond Gone with the Wind even, um, has a responsibility to offer that context to people so that we don't delete this art, because it is art from our history, and it is still very much part of our history, but we present it in a way that people can understand and learn definitely which is the way that you and i view movies to begin with so we're a little bit more uh apt to do that but i think that this is an opportunity i really i mean like i think that this is a reckoning at the moment where we are finally looking at uh, movies are starting to people are understanding that movies are art yes you know yes um, and not just entertainment. And it, it's a very, it's an interesting moment in a lot of ways. And the way that we consume uh, film is one of those. Definitely. And also, you know, the argument of whether a director intends to or not, or a writer for that matter, every movie is saying something. Mm-hmm. You know, there is some kind of lesson, morality, theme at play at work that the audience is getting and as you said it's our job as film fans film critics to figure out what that is and what they're saying and what's been so fun about our podcast is we're learning these themes and these messages that directors were intending for audiences back in the 1930s when things Mm -hmm. were so different and I think you hit it on the head, you know, films are pieces of history. They show where we were as a society, as a collective, as a people mm-hmm. in a given year. And, you know, that's why I've always loved the Academy Awards. What do they think is the best message film of the year? What yeah. does that say about us in terms of where we are? And the years that we get movies that are more popcorn versus more heavy, you mm-hmm. know, that says something. I mean, like the best years of our lives winning after going my way is mm-hmm. not going my way excuse me the last weekend last weekend and best right. years of our lives following up excuse yeah. me going my way is interesting it's very you know interesting. going my way is so lightweight and then you exactly to alcoholism and soldiers coming home from the war so it's like what were we, we ready for we hope that you're enjoying this journey with us but <laughs> i hope that what we're able to do is is make it somewhat educational too. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, that's kind of the best thing about movies. You know, I love movies so much because they tell you so much about a person. Yeah. That's why one of my favorite, you know, questions to ask is what are some of your favorite movies? Because it just tells yeah. me all I need to know about who you probably are. You know, well, I don't know. They're fascinating this actually, like that. This actually leads really, really well uh, into uh, the film that we're discussing today because the mm-hmm. film we're going to be discussing today is something that has been interpreted and reinterpreted and reinterpreted for centuries. Literally. We'll probably continue to have productions mounted of it for centuries to come. Um, And what's, I think, interesting about Hamlet and about Laurence Olivier is that Shakespeare in the 20th century, I think, was largely shaped by 
Laurence Olivier's interpretation of, of Shakespeare. Because mm-hmm. he was the one who started making these movies that became popular entertainment that were straight, relatively straight adaptations of the plays. Um, and And he puts his own imprint on them. And, you know, we're we'll get more into Hamlet in a little bit. And Hamlet, uh, uh, cinematically is very influenced by the films that are being made at the time. There is, there is a film noir feel to it. There is a, um, German expressionism feel to it. Um, so, uh, it's interesting, like how that's different from when Kenneth Branagh would do it in the nineties or, um, or even Orson Welles during this time. Or, this yeah, is and, around the time when he was beginning to do all of his Shakespearean adaptations as well, you know, and those are even way different when compared to Olivier's Shakespeare's and certainly Kenneth Branagh's Shakespearean adaptations as well. You know, yeah. it allows it allows filmateurs and these, you know, heavy directors to really kind of put their stamp on the work because you can interpret Shakespeare so many different ways, mm-hmm. you know? And if you were to watch, you know, there's, you can, there are so many versions of Hamlet you can watch if you feel so moved. And, (laughs) um, (laughs) and literally every single version that's out there, um, it's different than the one before it. And you may feel like you're watching the same story, but you're getting a different type of quality. I, I think that that shows... This shows, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about how film is so much about the perspective of the people who make it. Mm -hmm. And it's going to, even if the words are the same, even if the actors are the same, I mean, the actress who plays um, uh, uh, Hamlet's mother, can't think of her name. Jenna, is it? No, her name's Aline Hurley. Oh, right. The actress's name. Gertrude. Gertrude. There you go. The actress who plays Gertrude, uh, I was reading, played it again in the 60s yep. uh, with Richard Burton, you know, and the Richard Burton version, I'm sure, is still very different, even if he has the same actress playing his mother, because the actress is 20 years older, and yep. the material is is in color as opposed to black and white, and it's, it's a whole, it's on, and that was a stage version versus the film version, and you, you know... Um, yep. It's uh, talking about Shakespeare is a very um, interesting thing that we're doing this week. Definitely, especially in terms of cinema, you know, because until really this point, there were some earlier versions of Hamlet put on film. This was the first like actual English speaking language version of it in its, you know, as a feature film. Um, Yeah, where it was a cinematic experience. When you think of Hamlet or Shakespeare in general, you think of theater. You think of, you know, being in an audience with this live show. And Olivier really kind of proved just how cinematic Shakespearean's texts can become as well. Yeah. And you could open it up. Of course, he first um, did Henry V. Yep. Was it two years ago, right? Was that 45 he did that, I think? Yeah, two years ago. Yeah. Uh, Or or seventy five. I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, let's uh, let's pause for a moment and just kind of look at the nominees for this year. Um, uh, first off, uh, we got Johnny Belinda, which also won Jane Wyman a Best Actress Academy Award. Um, she is the first actress to win for not speaking <laughs> since. Well. Um, uh, since the silent era and Janet Gaynor. Janet Gaynor. Uh, and uh, and there have been a couple since, haven't there? Who else has won Oscars for not speaking? There's some more. Well, if you don't count... We do have we do have a, a deaf actress does win eventually. Yes. Um, I, I don't... I haven't seen Children of a Lesser God, so I don't know if she speaks. So, yeah, Patty Duke will win for Miracle Worker, and she only says one word, water. Water. And then, yes, Marley Matlin, Children of a Lesser God. As far as I remember, she does not speak in that movie. She does, she tries to, like, find her voice. You know, she's working with uh, William Hurt's character, who is helping her to develop her speaking voice. But she, like, fights against it. That's kind of the whole battle there in that film. Oh, um, I, I need I, to see that. 
It's really good. I don't remember. I like her. her. She was on The West Wing. Oh, what a, what a show. Oh, I love that show <laughs> so know. much. My God. And I guess if you don't count Holly Hunter's voiceover, I guess technically she doesn't speak in the piano. But she, but I guess there is the, the voiceover. The voiceover but would. I will say Johnny Belinda, uh, Jane Wyman, who, by the way, was uh, at the time Mrs. Ronald Reagan. Uh, <laughs> I, I, they get divorced maybe around this time, I think. But um, it, was a, it was a short marriage, wasn't it? No, they were actually, I think they were married for, hold on, I'll tell you. Oh, please she do. went to his funeral. I know that. Oh, wow. um, nine years. Hmm. They divorced in 1949, so about this time. Okay, never mind. There we go. And uh, they had children, too. So. Oh. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and funny enough, she was, uh, she had a TV show called Falcon Crest in the 80s. So, which was one of the, which was like a Dallas Dynasty type soap opera. Oh. Uh, Primetime soap. And, um, and she, so that was one of like the top 10 shows in the 80s while Reagan was pregnant, president. So she like, I guess her revenge was being big on TV. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Do you wonder if you watched it? I bet he did. Oh, I'm sure he didn't. I'm sure that Nancy was like, we are not watching that show. Ah, uh, probably. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, um, funny how only Republican presidents have been divorced. Anyway. Um, <laughs> shady. Shady. <laughs> I love it. Only. Um, nothing. No shame in being divorced. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm saying they're the, the supposed party of, of, of family values. Um, so, uh, Johnny Belinda, um, she plays a, uh, a deaf, um, a deaf girl, um, deaf and dumb, um, and she, uh, she ends up getting raped in the movie, um, and it is a very uncomfortable, um, very much, much more on the nose than you would expect in a movie in 1948 discussing rape. And um, it's, a, it's a very powerful movie. I highly, highly recommend it. Um, yeah, and it's that's... one of only a handful of movies to receive acting nominations in all four acting categories. I was just looking that up before we started. Uh, oh! Apparently there's only 15 15 total wow only one that wasn't nominated for best picture my man godfrey that was nominated for picture no but every other one with four acting nominees uh ends up being nominated for best picture yeah definitely oh wow interesting okay and the most that any have won is three no one's ever won all four and there's only two that have done that right streetcar and network both won three correct and that's it yeah it has. This has been trivia time with Sam and Rance. Uh, <laughs> so the next, uh, the next movie um, we have up is The Red Shoes. Another British film. Another, yeah, two nominated for Best Picture. Taking uh, over. And um, I was reading about how uh, the Academy uh, this this year was a little bit different. Um, and the reason that this took place at the Academy's theater is because the studios withdrew all financial support from the Academy because there was um, accusations of influence. Right. So it's interesting that the year this happens, there's also two British nominees, um, which might also be showing a, a little less less influence in the way of the studios by letting in some people who aren't uh, one of the... <laughs> five majors at the time absolutely and how do you feel about that i feel like that only makes sense because there's no way the studios were not in even in a small fashion influencing the outcome of the winners there's no way do you not think that the (laughs) mayor knew exactly who voted for who (laughs) oh yeah and you don't think jack warner was calling people and forcing them to vote for his movies there's no way that wasn't happening the warner brothers only won a couple (laughs) <laughs> um <laughs> yeah. true 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 he took home quite a few but um 
the Red Shoes, of course, is on I- iconic. If you haven't seen it, you've seen some of the imagery from it. It's uh, it's gorgeous Technicolor um, ballet film. Uh, Powell and Pressburger were a directing team in uh, in England. They also did a movie that I've been telling you about for a long time called Black Narcissus, which is amazing. Yes. Uh, and then uh, a movie called A Matter of Life and Death with uh, David Niven and um, uh, uh, there's um, a movie with it's just Pal, not Pressburger, um, called uh, Oh Gee, It's Scary. It came out in 1960. And exactly the year 1960. Mm-hmm. Oh. I'm Peeping Tom. Oh, sure, 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 sure. Yeah, and. They use, the use of color is so beautiful in these movies. They're really, uh, Red Shoes in particular is like, um, you know, using the word art. That's that's what it is. It's a symphony. of a Oh, yeah. Um, Snake Pit is mm. a favorite of mine. Which uh, I have not seen, but I really do want to see this movie. You would love this movie. I feel uh, like I would. Uh, Olivia de Havilland gives a really great performance in this film. Um, this is uh, this is like the precursor to the performance she's going to give next year when uh, we spend an episode talking about how the era should have won that picture. Um, and uh, that's it. That's it. That's the end of the story. The heiress, everything. <laughs> Best musical score, The Heiress. Best original <laughs> song, The Heiress. <laughs> the Heiress from There's The no Heiress. original song. It doesn't matter. <laughs> um, but uh, the snake bit, she plays um, a woman who is going into an insane, insane asylum. And you spend that journey with her mm-hmm. um, in the asylum. And it's, uh, it's very... Um, realistic might be the word for the time and the way that it depicts mental illness. It's, it's very, it's a very interesting little movie. Um, and she does a, she does a great job in it. Um, and then we have the treasure of Sierra of the Sierra Madre, which is probably the most famous movie um, of these, of these. Yeah. Um, Definitely one of the most famous families for sure. Oh yeah. We got Houston's galore. Um, John Huston made it. He is his dad is in it. His dad, Walter Huston, wins supporting actor mm-hmm. for the movie. Um, it has uh, the stink. No stink. We don't have no stinking badges. <laughs> line. <laughs> that was a really really good um, reading of that line. Thank you. Thank you. I. That's a great you know, impression. I love that part. But <laughs> <laughs> now, do you okay? Do you agree? With the statement that Bogart's, um, uh, him not getting a nomination for Best Actor in this movie, do you think that that's one of the greatest Oscar snubs? Um, well, let's look at the Best Actor race. We got we got Olivier, obviously. Uh, Lou Ayers for Johnny Belinda. Montgomery Clift getting his first nomination for The Search. Dan Daly for When My Baby Smiles at Me. And Clifton Webb for Sitting Pretty. Um, mm-hmm. let me look at this. I have not heard of When My Baby Smiles at Me. Um, it is a Betty Grable movie, so this seems, uh, kind of... I don't want to... Like, <laughs> musical and musical comedy performances are not necessarily easy, and I do, like, so, I do feel that sometimes we, we overemphasize dramatic performances and don't give comedic actors their due. I do agree with that. Um, I do find it ho- tough to believe, just based on the title, uh, that uh, that is a better performance than Humphrey Bogart. But he, but Humphrey gets his Oscar pretty soon, so he does for a less deserving part. But that's okay. We'll get into that in a couple of years. He should have had his Oscar a few years before this, so he should already have one. He should already have one. Um so I am okay with him not winning for this movie. It is a little strange yeah. that he isn't nominated. I don't know Very where strange. 
I, I can't, I, I'm sorry, Dan Daly. I shouldn't, I haven't seen the movie. I, I shouldn't uh, be disparaging you in this way. <laughs> but alas, here we are. Here we are. Uh, and uh, speaking of uh, Best Actor, though, we also have some interesting uh, Best Actress nominees. This is a very heavy hitter nominee list, actually. A lot uh, of big names here. Yeah, well, Jane Wyman wins, and I will say that that is 100% correct. <laughs> just yeah, that feels make, right. This Just to make it clear. Ingrid Bergman, haven't seen Joan of Arc. I know it's the big Technicolor version. Um, Ingrid Bergman's always great, though. Uh, Olivia, as I said, is great in State Pick. But uh, Irene Dunn is really, I like, I would want her to win if it wasn't for Jane Fonda, because I she doesn't have an Oscar, A. And I remember Mama, she plays this um, uh, uh, Swedish, I believe, Norwegian um Swedish Some Scandinavian Scandinavian uh, <laughs> uh she plays a Scandinavian um mom uh, mother she's the mama um Barbara Bel Geddes who you might know from a uh, Vertigo uh plays her daughter she's Midge in Vertigo um she was also on the show Dallas uh, and she was nominated for this as well. And she remembers in flashback just growing up with her mom and being poor in San Francisco and immigrants. And um, it's very episodic. It's sweet. It's not like that exciting of a movie. Um, it's more of a rainy day, half in the back type of thing. But like a, mellow, a melodrama. Yeah. Well, I mean, not even that. It's like, um, you know, just uh, a slice like, of life oh, type of movie. How how does the family get through this crisis where they're not going to be able to pay rent? You know, the kitchen sink drama. Yeah, and um and then sweet things happen and little funny things happen. You know, it's a family, and um Irene Dunn has just such a great little accent in the movie, <laughs> and I mention this because you know this is at a time when people didn't even necessarily have to do an accent if they were playing a different. Um, like people didn't care, you, you know. That's um, very true. You know, uh, and she just she just really commits and does a great job in this film. And I'm so upset she doesn't have an Oscar because she deserved one. Um, Barbara Stanwyck and Sorry Wrong Number. Uh, she's like an invalid, and she thinks that uh, she's going to get killed. And uh, the only thing she has is uh, she's alone at home, and the only thing she has to help her is her phone. Oh, wow. So yeah. it's like when a stranger calls, but before that. <laughs> uh, yeah. And <laughs> strangers call, I think, during the movie. Um, oh, Lancaster is her husband, I believe. And yeah. he's the one who, who was trying to kill her, I think. Um, it's always Burt Lancaster. Never trust him. You know. Um, yeah. So it's a it's a fun one. Barbara Samick also should have an Oscar, so that's upsetting. But... Uh, you know, I mean, you think about it and you look at this category and Jane Wyman, Ingrid Berman, Olivia de Havilland, there are six Oscars between them. Then Irene Dunn and Barbara Samwick don't have any. It's, mm. I don't know what to do with that. So, <laughs> so um, we'll just move on. Yeah, uh, I don't know if, that, let's see, I, I'm looking through here. Uh, uh, John Huston also directed the Best Supporting Actress winner. Uh, Claire Trevor won for Key Largo which is another Humphrey Bogart movie. That's the last of his four movies with Lauren Bacall. Right. Um, there, uh, Treasure Sierra Madre did win Best Screenplay um, for John Huston. Um, and uh, Walt Disney won like his 15th millionth Oscar and the short animated subject. And um, excuse me, not yeah, No, he won two Oscars. He won both... Uh, animated short subject and live action um so this brings us to the big winner of the night hamlet hamlet um which was i believe an original story um written by Lawrence <laughs> <laughs> he thought it up one night and said you know what i've got a good drama yeah he was hanging out with vivian and <laughs> And they were like, what if we, you know, this Romeo and Juliet thing was fine, but what if we 
create a character that can have a monologue with a skull. <laughs> and... <laughs> That's all I want. That's all I want. Uh, so, no, what are your what are your thoughts on this movie? What did you think about it? I'm so curious. Did you first of all, did you enjoy it? I think enjoy is the wrong word. Um, I like Shakespeare isn't really my jam. Okay, um, and uh, I, I very much respect Shakespeare, but to, I mean, like, but if I'm gonna watch Shakespeare, I'd rather it was like you know West Side Story. Or she's the man, and <laughs> um, you remember she's the man, right? Oh, do yeah. I? So you kind of like the reimaginings where you take the text and kind of update it for a modern audience. Yes, I know, which goes very much against what it seems like I stand for. But um, <laughs> I uh, and I acknowledge that. But I just um, it's just never really been my thing. That said. Um, I, I will commend Laurence Olivier because he is an extremely creative filmmaker and, um, he definitely is one of those actors who, who didn't, you know, some actors, you know, they get behind the camera and it's like, okay, you don't belong here. Um, but, but he had a vision and he carries that vision out, um, I mean, I can't imagine a more visually interesting version of Hamlet existing. Um, yeah. There, uh, the cinematography is great, um, and uh, the sets are interesting, and um, there's some good photographic and sound effects in the film. Uh, and even though I, it's not something that I was necessarily compelled by the whole time, um, and I did watch it in a couple of sittings, uh, I still could respect it. Maybe that's the right way to put it. I like that, and I agree with you. I think, you know, Shakespeare is very divisive. People love it, people hate it. I am kind of of the thought that I like to watch Shakespeare on the stage, especially mm-hmm. if you're using, you know, the actual words, his words and not updating it. To me, it just jumps out a lot better when you're listening to his text on a stage. Whereas, you know, in the cinema, you can get distracted by a lot of other things, costumes, set design, things on this grander scale where you lose the words sometimes. And if you start losing words in Shakespeare, then you have no idea what is going on. What I think Olivier does brilliantly, though, is instead of just giving us Hamlet as Shakespeare, he's giving us Hamlet as a film noir. You know, as you mentioned earlier, there are so many. um, It's very, very clear that he was very influenced by the film noir movement of the 1940s. Mm -hmm. You know, I just I just picture him sitting down one day and thinking, genius idea. I've got it. Hamlet as film noir. And it just makes sense. I mean. Hamlet is such a brooding character. There's death. There's double crossing. Murder. There's poison. Yeah. There's murder. And you the know, scene, it's all... scene towards the end that has, I mean, spoilers. You've had hundreds of years, but um, the scene towards the end with the duel um, and the poisoned cup, like that, is a very compelling, a very intense scene. You know, absolutely. Um, and the way that it's shot is, I mean, like, again, like, it, it, he, I, I feel like he makes all the best choices that you could make with this material at the time. And this is probably up until 1948, probably was the best Shakespeare had been done in this context. Definitely. Yeah. And I think it's I think um, a funny story, too, about this ceremony is how Ethel Barrymore was the one who announced Best Picture. And uh, she announced... Yeah. of her day. Exactly. She, <laughs> <laughs> she's just sitting in the front row with her sunglasses. <laughs> God, can you imagine? This is how I want to reimagine Ethel Barrymore. I want to reimagine her as a... As this just, like, Hollywood... Uh, big wig who just like goes from I mean she goes from set to set playing invalids and matrons and then <laughs> shows up at the big events to announce the big award knowing she's the biggest deal in town 
Uh, March is then like, I was a big stage actress and you're going to respect me. That's hilarious. No, but when she announced the winner, she was, uh, there was apparently a very, a visible distaste in the way she announced Olivier as the winner because she obviously much preferred when her brother did Hamlet on the stage, uh, John Barrymore. She preferred his own version of it. <laughs> Doesn't that just tell you all you need to know about the classic Lawrence Barrymore family? Olivier. Lawrence Olivier. I guess we'll give yeah. it to him. Olivier. But what's funny is Olivier's also gone on record as saying that his performance of Hamlet was very influenced by John Barrymore's performance of Hamlet. So we all come full and circle. to be fair, John Barrymore was no longer around. He could not give that performance anymore. <laughs> Absolutely so, And would have been too old even if he had been around. So, you know. Absolutely. I mean, Olivier is 40, though, when he made this movie. And uh, the actress... Uh, who I mentioned earlier, Aline Hurley, mm -hmm. um, which, by the way, the reason I know who this is is because I was a longtime watcher all through childhood um, up until when it was canceled of All My Children. And uh, she was... <laughs> <laughs> she was one of the older characters on the <laughs> the actress was on the show playing a a um a Scottish former carnival worker named Myrtle who um was like the sage advice person in town who all of the characters would go to to talk through their romantic dramas. So um and she died. And when she died, she was still a regular on the series and they did a big tribute episode. Oh wow! Well, that's I'm glad I'm glad to hear that her career lasted incredibly long. That makes me happy. Well, and she was nine, like ninety, when she died. So huh. she worked up until the year she died. That's amazing. Episodes, the year she died. That is. Now let me ask you this: What do you think of the relationship between Hamlet and his mother in the that movie? How they kiss all the time. Literally, <laughs> no. It's funny. There, every film scene between Hamlet and his mother, it's it's almost like we leave the film noir behind and we enter like this romantic love story. It's it very, is. You know, it's very it intense. Very like their, their passion is very. I don't know, like, very prevalent. Well, this goes, again, to interpretation of the text, because, I mean, you don't have to read it that way, you know? True. Um, and the way that Olivier chooses to present it is in a way that feels incestuous. Definitely. You know, it's like, because he's... I think he's asking the question of, you know... Is Hamlet upset that his uncle is the king only because he loves his mother more? Like, also incestuous there as well, too. You know, I mean, the the mom is marrying her husband's brother. You know, there's there's a lot of weird familial relationships going on. Well, but that's also very common in a lot of Shakespearean plays. Well, I mean, at the end of the play, um, Olivier also interprets it that... Gertrude is intentionally committing suicide to save mm -hmm. Hamlet, where many versions portray it as an accident. But she exactly. On purpose. Yes. Which, um, I mean, I think speaks to what she may feel about her son and that that may be a two-way street, so. Yeah, I agree with you. And I will say there are a lot of those little things, the choices that Olivier makes from the text that really make this uh, a more lively version of Hamlet. Mm -hmm. Hamlet is not one of my favorite Shakespearean plays. It's, I don't know, I don't really relate to it a whole lot. I don't find it incredibly interesting or entertaining. But, but I do enjoy... fights all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you got me. <laughs> no, but I think his the interpretations that he did and the things that he... Um, did to make it his own, I think, really were quite successful. I I love the way it's filmed. You can obviously tell there are a lot of influences from Greg Tolan's photography work in Citizen Kane, Rebecca. Some you deep know, focus in there. Yes, the lighting yeah. is very influenced from film noir and, you know, a, a Best Picture winner two years ago or three years ago of The Lost Weekend. You know, this is already our second oh. film noir movie to win Best Picture. You know, clearly these darker, more internal, dramatic, almost horror films, you know, were very popular in the 1940s. I mean, 
yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's it's something that when you see Hamlet written on a list um, in the middle of uh, you know a, a anti-Semitic drama like. Uh, not anti-Semitic. It's it's pro-Semitic, but it's about anti-Semitic. <laughs> right. Gentlemen's um, agreement. Gentlemen's agreement. Uh, and uh, a film noir like The Lost Weekend, and um, a political drama like All the King's Men. When you see this list, and you're like, Hamlet feels like the odd man out here because all of these movies are dealing with current issues and are about the style the filmmaking styles of this period. But then you um, you watch Hamlet and you see it's it's just interesting how very much it is of that time um, and influenced by the time. Uh, and I, I, I get it. I get I get why it won. I, it's not it's not going to be a movie I revisit a lot. Um, it's not something I would say is a favorite, but I I understand it. Yes. Here's a question for you. I would say the greatest flaw for me in this movie is Gene Simmons' performance. Yeah, I was thinking, I was thinking, I was going to mention her. Um, I really like Gene Simmons. I just want to start out by saying that. She um, she is in uh, some stuff um, that I really, really enjoy. She, uh, in about a decade or so, will get to Elmer Gantry. Uh, where Burt Lancaster won his Oscar, and she plays a very charismatic um, evangelist in that film, and she's phenomenal. And um, she's also in... Uh, uh, she's the best part of Guys and Dolls, which is kind of a uneven um, movie musical from the 50s. Um, but she she's great in that. She's, she's a very dependable actress, um, but she, uh, <laughs> she's, it's, it's not that she isn't good at playing crazy. It just, um, it, it, I, I don't know if it's the direction here or, or what, but she, she is it, it seemingly in a different film. Yes. Oh, it just didn't match anything. And almost like she wasn't even reciting Shakespeare. There was, you know, it was like the rest of the actors were all following this certain rhythm. There was a, a beat and a pulse to it. And every time she started to act and perform, it was so over the top. It was awful. Yeah, it is. It felt um, it felt put upon. It contrived. Felt... It's like she couldn't connect to the text. I almost wonder if she even knew what she was saying. You know, and if, if Olivia was just telling her, you're going crazy in this scene. Oh, okay. And then every word she says, every line of Shakespeare is just driving that down our throats. And it's yeah, I'm oh, glad it's awesome. her in other things, because if I, I had just started with this, I wouldn't have thought much about her. She is she is an extremely good actress. So I, I don't know what went wrong here. But, I feel like it has to be a connection to the text. It's yeah. just not there. But it then is. again, the the Academy chose to nominate her, which I find to be an insane nomination. But yeah, but I here we are. I don't I don't understand. Because <laughs> um, I, I like if I would have nominated any, anybody, it would have been the mom. Yes. You know. But, but okay. Um, so let me ask you: in, in in Gene Simmons' career, was this wasn't her first film? Was it one of her first films, though? It's very early in her career. She's she's young here. So it must uh, be the typical Hollywood storyline of young ingenue in a big movie. You know, yeah, it's Shakespeare. A couple other things that came, like she's in Black Narcissus, which I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um. Her role in Black Narcissus is a little problematic because she is playing a different race than what she actually is. Um, but um, but she was memorable in the film, so yeah. I th- that brought her into the consciousness. Um, definitely. It just seems like this is the movie that kind of catapulted her career, and I just find that so interesting just because maybe it's just us looking back on it now and realizing just how camp, you know, over the top it appears when compared to the other actresses in the film I mean, but that's that whole thing like you're looking something in the context of the time but maybe you know maybe, maybe she her energy was matching something that um 
was connecting with the young generation of the period, you know? Um, totally, and that might just be it. Or it could also be, you know, Hollywood wanting to start putting more um, emphasis on younger actors and actresses to kind of start a new generation, you know? She also is the only one who really fits in that category, even though... Uh, even though the actress playing Gertrude is actually like 29, 29 years old, she's the only female in the movie who has that look, has that the youth, the youth and that energy. Um, So she's the one, she's the one you would build up out of this. And again, she had been making other things that, that helped her along as well. Um, and she, it's so funny because she's so subtle in most movies, <laughs> too. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, I, I really, like, yeah, before before we get to 1960, watch Elmer Gantry. You'll be... Oh, yes. You'll be blown away. Plus, it has two Oscar-winning performances in it, so... Work! Oh, absolutely. So, okay, so let's see. Would you... Do you think Hamlet deserves its Best Picture win? In regards to the other nominees, or are we all team... Um, a different movie. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's weird. It's like we we went through some of these nominees. It's it's weird that Key Largo isn't nominated. It's weird. Um, it, it, it's it's but there's nothing in the year that jumps out to me to the point that I I don't feel like anything was robbed necessarily i know that treasure of sierra madre is the one that people talk about but for some reason that movie doesn't even though it is a better movie than hamlet and even though it is like a, a top 100 movie a of all classic time, yeah there's sometimes movies that are that are like that it's a wonderful life is like this for me too but it doesn't need to be a best picture winner and i don't know why Sure. But it's it's feel like one. It's almost like it's transcended the Oscars because it means something to people and not just an industry, you know? We we talked about double indemnity a few weeks ago. That should have won Best Picture in nineteen forty four, but it doesn't need to win Best Picture to be double indemnity, you know? Sure. Um very true. And and uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's there's a certain no, yeah. I think it's kind of not fun. Bad. No. I agree. I think it's fun that like a Shakespeare adaptation has won the Best Picture Oscar. And I also find it incredibly fitting that Laurence Olivier's acting Oscar is for Shakespeare, too. And he's the only actor to win for playing Isn't that wild? And the only actor to direct himself to an Oscar win as well. Yes. You know, and it's it's fitting that he... it's inter- He didn't win director for this, but... True. He did win as a producer and as an actor. One of his uh, ten nominations but his only win exactly yeah all right so i'll leave you this with this trivia question i found this to be really interesting hamlet is one of only two best picture winners that features a ghost what's the other movie hold on the other best picture winner that has a ghost in it have we already talked about it or is it no i have i have my guess and we haven't talked about it we won't for a while Oh, we won't. We won't talk about this for a while. Um, but I'm not sure if it's technically correct in what they're looking for. It's the only one that I could think of that has a ghost in it. Uh, did you not find the other one conclusively? No, I didn't Google it. I just wrote down what I thought. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, well, good. That That's the best way to do it. Uh, what are you thinking? I'm thinking Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. There's the oh, ghost. That, that makes sense. That's what made sense to me. Because um, I'm like thinking through it in my head and I can't think of anything. You know. Um, can think of some ones that have ghostly makeup. <laughs> well, that must be right. Yeah. Um, I thought that was kind of an interesting trivia question. I well, think it's just that, Lord of the Rings. It's interesting. I guess we'll just be on the lookout. You know. That's true, yeah. We'll, we'll see if we, we find we another one. Eve and we're like, oh yeah, the ghost scene. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, the classic ghost scene. How could I forget? Yeah, I don't think that. Oh I don't think that's a thing. <laughs> there it is. 
Okay, so we've got one more year in the 40s. Next year, 1949, uh, we are going to be watching All the King's Men. I also have not seen this. I haven't seen it either, and I'm really curious to because I, um, it won picture, it won actor and supporting actress, and I'm a big fan of Mercedes McCambridge. I think she's a phenomenal actress, and I'm excited to see her winning performance. What an interesting career, too. What she, an interesting career. So, yes, uh, uh, thank you. We're now in real time, guys. We we're, sure are, and we're recording over Skype, so if you... You hear funny noises, just, you know, be aware that we are in the comfort of our own homes and this is what we have to do to make sure we're safe. Yeah, and we are very much observing, no matter what the rest of the country seems to think the pandemic is over, we're not <laughs> stupid and we're st we're sheltering in place at home. <laughs> 100% we are. So Indeed. we will be chatting with you guys next week.